Welcome to our latest podcast in the time of social distancing. Uh, as with our last podcast, I, I think this is rather timely and rather uh, important topic. Uh, today's presentation is called Families and Protective Orders for Limited Jurisdiction Judges. Uh, we do have two outstanding presenters for you today. Uh, the Honorable Gerald Williams is the Justice of the Peace for the North Valley Justice Court. Uh, he's the person who identified this problem. And then the Honorable Bruce R. Cohen, who is the presiding judge for Maricopa County Superior Court Family Department. And together the two of them uh, raised the issue and uh, filed a rule petition to try to resolve that issue. I've attached their biographies in the written materials uh, along with the certificate of attendance which you will find uh, in Hightail as always under judicial resources. Uh, so please go ahead and find those materials and print them off. And so I will start with an exp uh, explanation of the rule change process. Back in December uh, Judge Williams and Judge Cohen filed a joint petition for a rule change uh, to, amend the rule, to amend the rules of protective order procedure with respect to people coming in for injunctions against harassment and including children uh, when there are family court matters that may already impact the children. Uh, and Judge Williams will go ahead and give a much more detailed and passionate explanation of that situation. Thank you. I'm not sure how impassioned I'll be, but uh, thank you for setting up a, this podcast during a time of social distancing so we can talk about problems with one type of court order that keeps people away from each other. I guess that's kind of ironic in and of itself. Under the current Arizona system, um, municipal court judges and justices of the peace can inadvertently issue court orders that conflict with superior court orders for what used to be called custody, child custody and visitation. The more modern term is parenting time. Um, sometimes we're even asked to issue conflicting orders. It happens this way. Many parents allege that their former spouse's new love interest is abusing their children. Rather than go to superior court, they come to either a justice court or a city court and request an injunction against harassment. On these requests, they list the children as protected party. Essentially, they want the ex's new partner to be prohibited from being around their children. If such an injunction is granted, it can impact their ex's ability to exercise their parenting time. I completely understand why mothers and fathers don't want their ex's new boyfriend or girlfriend around their children, but to the extent possible, one court needs to be making all of the relevant judicial decisions concerning parenting time and that court cannot be a limited jurisdiction court. We don't have the authority and we don't have the information. There are four main problems with our current structure. First, it requires a limited jurisdiction court judges to address parenting-related issues without having the case history or the background. Even if we had the ability to independently access or research family court case files, we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, judicial ethics requirements require judges to stay within the record of the case in front of us, and we're not supposed to go out and do our own independent research. The second problem with the current system is that it creates competing court orders, one issued by the limited jurisdiction court 
from being present when the children are home, and the other issued by the Superior Court judge that did not restrict place any type of restriction like that on the parents' time with the children. In one kind of extreme case, I had a Maricopa County Sheriff's deputy call me and ask me which quarter order controlled. The more recent one that I had issued from Justice Court given to him by the mother or the Superior Court order given to him by the father. Uh, to his frustration, I told him that I couldn't make that call, and I told him he needed to get his legal advice from the county attorney's office. Uh, the third issue is that self-represented litigants can easily become confused when they are required to relitigate part of their family court case in a limited jurisdiction court uh, setting. To many people, a judge is a judge, and they may not understand why a judge can keep someone away from their children but can't also fix the problems created by issuing that order. This is especially true when there is testimony in the Justice Court case concerning what the Superior Court Judicial Officer allegedly said. Um, I've had cases when uh, a party or even an attorney representing a party will offer Superior Court minute entries and Superior Court documents as evidence in a Justice Court case. And I'm, it becomes frustrating. I'm like, well, why am I hearing this case? Why isn't the judge that issued these orders or issued these minute entries hearing the case? And fourth, it, it kind of dovetails on the, the first part. The current rules almost encourage some kind of game, gamesmanship or, or judge shopping. Some less than fully candid litigants conceal their family court case from limited jurisdiction court judges and use an injunction against harassment as a form of what lawyers would call as a collateral attack on a recent family court order. In courthouses that house both Superior Court and Justice Courts, this can happen on the same day in the same building. Before the minute entry from Superior Court is typed and distributed, there may already be an injunction against harassment from a Justice Court contradicting part of it. But even with Justice Courts and Superior Courts that are in the same building, there's currently no mechanism to transfer the injunction from Justice Court to Superior Court. The reason is the parties to the injunction are different than the parties to the family court case. The parties to the injunction may be mother versus um, husband's ex-husband's new girlfriend, but the, the parties to the family court case are mother and father. So there's not, a, a, typically you can't transfer a case to Superior Court unless there's, there's an actual case to transfer it to. My initial solution to this problem was to simply request that court rules be amended to allow the injunction against harassment cases with kids on them also be issued, that, that were issued by a limited jurisdiction court judge, just to be transferred to Superior Court. This, this made sense to me. I was like, well, rather than me try to figure this out, why don't I go ahead and issue the injunction and then just transfer it to Superior Court, and whatever family court judge is assigned to part of the case can hear the rest of it, too. Uh, the Arizona Justice of the Peace Association initially liked that idea. The Committee on Limited Jurisdiction Courts liked that concept as well. But when we actually met with Superior Court judges, they quickly pointed out a conflict of law problem. And uh, now's probably a good point for me to stop talking because I will turn it over to a subject matter expert on family law to explain 
So Judge Cohen, can you tell us why the transfer would create a conflict of law issue and explain to our limited jurisdiction judges who may not have a lot of familiarity with family, uh, family court or family law what alternatives are actually out there? Well, thank you, Ring. Uh, I want to say at the outset that um, Judge Williams did a great job of doing two things. Number one, identifying a problem. And number two, championing uh, the effort to find a solution. And while uh, he modestly says that the solution he came up with was a non-starter, uh, I beg to differ with him. Uh, I think the solution he came up with really led to us collaborating. And I think we came up with a solution to the problem that uh, thoroughly addresses the various segments to it that come in conflict and, and work uh, or are involved in these cases. So let's, let's just start with this same concept that Judge Williams was uh, speaking about. Parents come to court, whether it's the Superior Court or to one of the limited jurisdiction courts, and ask for injunctions against harassment on behalf of their children. That is not uncommon. In those cases where the parent is asking for somebody like a neighbor or a coach uh, or maybe one of their friend's parents to stay away from their children, it shouldn't cause anybody any cause, any pause. If that case is presented and they give a factual basis for what they're doing. The problem is, as we all know, and and I would suggest the, the limited jurisdiction uh, courts are even more familiar, is that parents come in on behalf of their children to address things that impact the other parent, even though the injunction against harassment is not technically against the other parent. And the new significant other, as Judge Williams pointed out, is the most common of those situations whether that's a new girlfriend or boyfriend or a new husband or wife. Once that order is issued uh, that precludes this, that new third party, the, the, the wife or girlfriend of the husband, from being around the children, that poses a major problem if the father of those children live in the, lives in the same house with his significant other. And that raised the situation that Judge Williams commented upon where he was contacted by law enforcement and asked which order applies, the one that was more recent or the one that father is showing me that says he's supposed to have his children every other week. So when Judge Williams and uh, Judge Welty, who's our presiding judge for Maricopa County and I got together, we had a really, I think, thoughtful discussion that number one, confirmed that there is a problem, and number two, led us to arriving at a solution. Uh, on the problem side of the equation, uh, I had concurred with Judge Williams as to Judge Welty that limited jurisdiction court judges were put in terrible situations when asked to issue an order that involved children, an injunction against harassment that covered children, uh, on such limited information with only one party appearing before you. 
when the implications of it were so wide-reaching and the information was so limited. Further, there were complex relationships that were at play, uh, including the relationship that children has, have with each parent. So we recognized that he uh, and all of you had identified a very legitimate problem that called out for a solution. But here's where we um, came together to find the solution that we actually have arrived at. When, let's take the same exact fact pattern, uh, but in two different courts. Mom appears in a municipal or justice court and asserts that the new girlfriend of dad is being verbally abusive to the children. If that issue were presented in the justice court, the determination will be under the laws that apply merely to injunctions against harassment. If that same issue were brought before a superior court judge in a Title 25 action, an action that relates to divorce, paternity, legal separation, and what used to be called custody of children is now referred to as legal decision-making authority and parenting time. When that same claim that the new girlfriend or new wife of dad is emotionally abusing the children, the Superior Court will analyze those issues under Title 25, a completely different set of laws than would apply in the Justice Court or Municipal Court. And under Title 25, the Superior Court is mandated to, de to determine those issues under Arizona Revised Statute Section 25403A, the best interest statute. And that statute gives a number of factors and there's a mandate that the court must make findings as to those factors. So if we take the same fact situation, we see that if it's brought to the justice court or municipal court, one set of laws apply. If that same issue is brought to the superior court, a different set of laws apply. So that's what led us to another part of the discussion uh, when Judge Williams and Judge Wealthy and I met. Another thing that we identified was that if the case is between mom and let's call the other person stepmom. Um, if it's brought in the justice court or municipal court and that judge issues the injunction against harassment and then transfers the case to the superior court for any further proceedings, it is not transferred to the original custody order. Why is that? Because the original, I'm calling it custody, we. We do know that it's referred to by a different name, but for simplicity purposes, let's use the custody term uh, here. When that case gets transferred, it doesn't go to the custody case, and the reason is the two parties in the custody case are mom and dad, not mom and stepmom, which leaves then the Superior Court with two choices when the case is transferred. Either stepmom is now added as a party to the custody case, or 
the case that gets transferred from the limited jurisdiction court becomes just a separate civil action in the Superior Court, meaning it would be covered by a judge or commissioner covering injunctions against harassment. It would not be addressed by the judge assigned to do the family court case. So we identified these two core problems, the different application of law to the same set of facts and the fact that we have different parties to the injunction against harassment versus the divorce case or the custody orders that are in existence. And our solution to the problem was, putting it as simplistically as I can, let's do our best to keep children off of those injunctions against harassment when there's reason to believe it will impact a custody case. Uh, and Judge Williams, I, I, do you think that I summarized the journey we went on together? Absolutely. Okay. So Charles, I'll turn it back to you. And thank you, Your Honor. Uh, there has been an objection filed to the rule change petition uh, by a limited jurisdiction judge on behalf of the SIDVIC committee. And that, to summarize, and that comment will be, in, is enclosed in the materials along with the rule change petition. And that comment essentially says, well, what about the situation where someone cannot quickly get to the superior court to ask for the family court relief in superior court? Judge Cohen, would you like to address that? And uh, I will state that I am a member of CIDVIC, which is the Committee on Domestic Violence and the Impact on the Courts. Uh, it is a committee that, that's uh, a, a committee of the Supreme Court, and its focus is on domestic violence issues. And I was part of the conference call that led to the comment uh, made to this proposed rule change. And there are very reasonable points raised in that, those comments. So the first part is, um, well, what if it is a true emergency and there isn't the opportunity to go to that other court? Uh, it's an easy solution, as in Judge Williams' situation, because his court is co-located up at the Northwest Regional Court with the Superior Court. So if someone comes into his court, he recognizes that there are custody-related implications to the injunction against harassment petition. He has the ability to literally send the parties down the hall to the Superior Court and tell them to bring the action there. However, that's an exception, not the rule. Most justice courts are not, and municipal courts, are not co-located with a superior court, and in fact, are sometimes at a fairly great distance from the superior court. And while it is true that if you have people in front of you and there is a true emergency presented, it is very difficult to say you're in the wrong place. But that doesn't change the fact that you would still be called upon to issue orders using one set of laws that are different from the applicable set of laws. And this is an important point to note. 
all superior courts throughout the state of Arizona accept and uh, receive on a daily basis emergency motions relating to children. They come in in uh, large numbers, and it's, it's, uh, there are infrastructures within all the Superior Court locations throughout the state to deal with those emergency motions. No differently than when the parties appear in a limited jurisdiction court, those parties are filing for ex parte relief, which we all know uh, means they're asking for relief or you to enter an order without the other party being present and, in fact, with the other, without the other party even knowing that you're addressing the issues. Then when the other party receives the order, that other party has a right to request a hearing. Well, no differently than if one of those litigants appeared in your court, they can appear in the Superior Court using a different methodology but arriving at the same endpoint. There is an emergency, and it impacts children. Uh, I know that this is true in Maricopa County, and I believe it's true in most of the other counties as well. We have a self-service center where the forms for those emergency motions are readily available in the event a litigant, a parent, shows up to apply for that relief. So I'm going to go back to our stereotypical example. The mother appears at the Superior Court and wants to file an emergency motion to keep the stepmother away from the children. She then fills out the forms. They get processed through the court and land on the desk of one of the Superior Court judges who is either assigned that case or is more or less the duty judge that day to cover emergencies. If that came before me, I will review the petition or the motion for emergency orders, and I will determine, number one, is there an emergency established in the motion? And number two, do I need to enter this order right now, or if I wait until I can get both parties in front of me, will there be potential irreparable harm to the children? Well, I can tell you that in most cases, the issues presented do suggest urgency, but it is uncommon for them to show that a child will be irreparably harmed if we don't act right then. And what we do is either issue the order, keeping, granting the relief that the, in this hypothetical, the mother asked for, and then she serves the father, and the order would say, Dad, you have to keep stepmom away from the children. And then Dad could request a hearing. Or the court won't grant the ex parte order, in other words, won't keep stepmom away from the children, but will set a hearing for three, four, five days later, at which time dad could come in and a hearing could be conducted between involving dad and mom to determine whether it is factually true that stepmom poses a risk to the children. Again, all of those decisions are made under Title 25. So when Civic expressed its concern, its concern is legitimate. What if somebody shows up at a limited jurisdiction court at 4 o'clock on a Friday only to be told they're in the wrong court? And the best answer I can give in those circumstances is it's still the wrong court. Um, if, as an example, 
a party were facing foreclosure proceedings, and the foreclosure sale was set for the next day. And they showed up in a limited jurisdiction court and said, please issue an order preventing the foreclosure sale that's set for 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. That limited jurisdiction court doesn't have the authority to issue that order. Those people would have to go to the Superior Court. Now, while I'm not comparing a foreclosure to a child being in jeopardy, I am suggesting that there is a recourse for those emergencies and it should be in the Superior Court. So that is um, my best answer to a very legitimate issue that Sidvik had raised. And um, uh, the application of laws and the availability of relief, both of those suggest that just because a party went to the incorrect court, uh, they should, um, in, under that circumstance, be able to get relief. The second point, or a second point that Sidvik uh, raised that was legitimate is, how does the limited jurisdiction court even know that there's a, an existing family court order? And that's a really good question. But let me just suggest the following. We're going to go back to the hypothetical, which is mom is seeking an order relating to stepmom. She shows up in the limited jurisdiction court and files her petition for injunction against harassment. She appears then before the judge. And the, one of the questions that very legitimately should be asked of mom is, this person that you are seeking this order from or against, that being stepmom, how is she involved in your children's lives? Now, if it were the next-door neighbor or the, the parent of one of your child's friends, the, the answer is very simple. You know, uh, my daughter is friends with uh, this woman's daughter, and, but, I don't, but this woman uh, who is her, my daughter's friend's uh, mother is not a good influence, and she's been doing these things that disturb me in the presence of my daughter. You would then know this doesn't impact a family court case. This is between your neighbors or people that have other contact with one another. But suppose that mom's answer to you is, oh, she's the new wife of my ex-husband, or she lives with my ex-husband, and through that she sees my children, or she's my husband's new girlfriend and is often at my ex-husband's home. All of those things would cause you to pause and say, I'm getting the impression here that this involves a family court matter. And then the question that would follow to mom would be, I understand, so you're saying this person, this, this woman, has access to your children through your ex-husband. I assume there must be some court orders that are in place between you and your ex-husband. The answer would be, well, there are, yes. And that would be all you would need to know to then say, all right, I will tell you what, I will grant your injunction against harassment as it relates to keeping your husband's new girlfriend or new wife away from you. But I am not going to restrict her from being around your children, not because I don't believe you, but because that action has to be brought in the case 
uh, the custody case between you and your ex-husband. And that's the way that you would discover that there is an existing order of protection, excuse me, uh, an existing uh, custody order from which your injunction against harassment may then have an impact. And so those are my answers to some very well, well thought out and well stated concerns that came from CIDVIC. Uh, it's not a perfect solution, but it neither is the current system, which in essence has burdened all of our limited jurisdiction courts uh, in having to do many custody trials constantly uh, on limited information and not being able to apply the, the law that, that is applicable. And it also um, it avoids the situation where um, people are forum shopping and they're trying to do an end run around the custody order by going to the limited jurisdiction court. Charles, I'll turn it back to you then. And so, Judge Williams, as a limited jurisdiction judge, what are you going to tell the applicant in this situation? Well, I'm going to steal the suggested language that just Judge Cohen just gave everybody. Um, I have an advantage that a lot of people do not because I have family court judges down the hall and about halfway between my courtroom and the family court courtrooms is a, a self-help center where I, uh, I can say, look, stop there. There'll be someone who can help you fill out the forms um, because I don't know uh, Superior Court what triggers a filing fee and what doesn't and if they're filing a brand new order and all those kinds of things. So I tell them that if there's a, a filing fee that they can apply to have the filing fee waived, but I, I just tell them that I don't have the authority to do child custody cases, and it, it's it's very hard to tell people no. Uh, they will they will break down in tears. They'll become hysterical. Really, the only reason they came in to get the injunction is to put their kids on the order. They don't care so much about the them being separated from their former partner's new love interest. They just don't want the new love interest around their kids. And it, I understand that sometimes uh, lawyers send people in bad faith into the court. Well, my lawyer told me to do this. My lawyer told me, said you would grant this. Or sometimes you get, well, CPS told me to do this. Or or something like that, and you just have to, as, as calmly as you can, explain to them that they they need to be in, in the right court, and it, it works best if one judge decides all the issues, rather than me have decide, you know, who can be present at the custody exchange when that impacts everything else. Frequently, the the new girlfriend or the new boyfriend is is also a babysitter from time to time. Sometimes they're the transportation that that brings the kids back and forth between the parents. So if if you cut that off, you can inadvertently impact someone's visitation or, or parenting time. So you, you just have to try to explain to them that 
limited jurisdiction court judge. I could only do certain things. I can solve this problem for you. I can't solve that problem. I can't solve problems with your child support either. If if your former spouse has been ordered to pay child support and he or she is supposed to be paying child support, that has to be in family court. I, I can't fix that. I can't do anything about getting property back as part of an order of protection. These are these are all things that that have to be resolved in a different form or a different case. Sometimes I, I tell people that injunctions keep people apart. They don't really solve any problems other than that. They're just designed to keep people apart. And I can't order as part of the injunction that you get your car back or, or something like that. It's it's the same type of situation. And let me, if I may, piggyback on, on what Judge Williams just said. Um, if we look at what he commented was his first solution, and then we look at the solution we arrived at together, they both ask you to do uh, an act of, of kind of transferring it to the Superior Court. Under the first suggested solution, you would issue the injunction against harassment, including putting the children on the order, and then transfer the whole case to the Superior Court. We are only asking under this rule that there be one change to that process. You may still issue that injunction against harassment between the adults, but just instead of issuing the order that includes children and then transferring the case, this rule says you can issue the injunction against harassment, but don't include the children on it. And rather than re transferring the case to the Superior Court, you're telling the party, go to Superior Court. So the solutions are very similar. Both solutions, the one that was came up first and the one that we arrived at as our proposal together, take the limited jurisdiction courts as much as possible out of the custody business. You should not be burdened by those cases. You don't have the same information that's available. And it is used, and, and I don't say this with any statistical number to back it, there, is, there are a number of cases where these injunctions against harassment are used for ulterior motives that have to do with the dynamic that goes on between divorced parents. Um, and uh, those cases frequent the Superior Court, and uh, it, it, it requires you to analyze them completely out of the context of the case history, and as I said before, without regard to the laws under Title 25. So I think both of us are very comfortable in saying this is a good solution. Is it a perfect solution? I, I don't know. Be, we'll find that over time. I don't know that there's a perfect solution to anything, but this is a really good solution to a problem that, as, uh, as Judge Williams identified, has existed for quite some time and has really complicated the lives of divorced or non-married parents who have custody orders. It has also created great confusion for law enforcement and has created great uncertainty for children. And I think, Judge Williams, I can speak for both of us, that we feel the solution that we proposed to the Supreme Court 
minimizes all of those concerns that I've just listed. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. While we have Judge Cohen uh, available, I do want to bend his ear on another subject because I'm aware that this has uh, arisen in a couple of our justice courts twice in the, in the last couple of months. But we do have parties that have um, family court matters outside of Arizona. And so they or their attorney will ask for relief under the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction <clears throat> and Enforcement Act in an order of protection proceeding. And that creates quite the problem. Can you address that, Judge Cohen? I'd be happy to. Uh, let me give you a little background on this thing called the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act. And because um, all courts seem to love acronyms, you will hear this referred to as the UCCJEA. Uh, my goodness, sometimes I have engaged in conversations uh, or heard other judges engaged in conversations where the entire sentence uh, includes acronyms as if everybody understands uh, what all those things mean. So let me give you a ba some background on this thing called the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act, but for the ease of this discussion, I'm going to call it for now on the UCCJEA, and hopefully you'll just remember it for what it is. It really uh, evolved. There was a prior act called the UCCJA, and the UCCJEA replaced it. I think it was around 2000 or 2001. Uh, but what the purpose was um, were the situations where the potential for two different states to issue competing orders about children. And we clearly don't want that to happen. If a mom could go to uh, a court in Alaska and get an order that restricts dad's contact with the children, and at the same time, dad goes to a court in Arizona and gets an order restricting mom's access to the children, then that old adage of possession is nine-tenths of the law would suddenly apply to children. Because if those children are with mom in Alaska, then she's got the protection of an order within that state that says, Dad, you can't see the kids. If those kids happen to be with Dad at that moment in Arizona, he would have the protections because the Arizona order keeps Mom away from them. So the UCCJA was really created so that we have one state deciding issues about children. And the important concept under the UCCJA is this notion of home state the home state of the children. And by definition, it is where the children have resided for the immediate past six months. So if the children have lived in Arizona for the immediate past six months, Arizona would be the home state. If they lived in Alaska for the last six months, Alaska would be the home state. Now, once a court exercises its authority over the children, under the UCCJEA, then, because that's the home state of the children, then that state becomes the exclusive jurisdiction for the future. So under my hypothetical from before, 
if Arizona were the home state of the children and dad secured an order in Arizona, Arizona would continue to hear any cases in the future relating to those children, including any situation where maybe the children have left Arizona and are up in Alaska now, but dad remains in Arizona. Arizona would still have what we call exclusive jurisdiction. And that exclusive jurisdiction continues for so long as the court that issued the first order still has ties to the family. And those ties are either the children still live there or at least one of the parents still live there. So I'm going to get to how this all comes up in your situation. Suppose for a moment that those children who live in Alaska, and under my hypothetical, I'll change the facts, and I'll say Alaska issued the original order. And mom and the children still live in Alaska. But those children come to Arizona during the summer, and they spend their summer with dad. Dad gets wind of the fact that something nefarious is going on while the children are in Alaska. Maybe mom is abusing the children, or, or mom is doing something that is placing the children in danger. He then goes to try to get an order keeping mom away from the children. He can do this in two different ways. He can get an order of protection, or he can go, well, actually three ways. He can get the order of protection. He can go to the Superior Court in Arizona to ask for emergency release, or he can file the case in Alaska, the, the exclusive jurisdiction over the children. So let me explain what would happen differently in those three examples. If he goes to Alaska and files a motion there saying, hey, judge in Alaska who has had jurisdiction over this case, you may have not known this, but mom is abusing the children. So I'm asking you for an order that they be placed in my care. That would be a standard modification of custody case. Again, I use the term custody loosely. Arizona refers to it as decision-making authority and parenting time. So I'm using the term custody just for ease of reference. It would be a, a, a case there, and Dad would have to present his evidence in Alaska, even though he lives in Arizona. He'd have to present his case in Alaska and explain to the judge there why it's no longer in the best interest of the children to live with their mother, the answer being they're in danger. And that judge would make a ruling. Scenario number two, Dad decides to go to the Superior Court and to ask the Superior Court to issue a custody order. Now, Arizona, under that hypothetical, would not have jurisdiction over the children under the UCCJEA. However, there is one provision within the Act that says if a child is physically present in Arizona and is in danger, the Arizona court can exercise emergency jurisdiction to enter whatever orders are needed to protect the child. So under my hypothetical, the children are in Arizona, it's summer, they're visiting with their dad, and he believes that they are in danger. If we turn to mom, he can file an action here to not have to put them on the plane, let's say, on August 15th when they're supposed to go back for the start of the school year. In that circumstance, the judge here would only issue the orders that are required to protect the emergency. 
and then would refer the case back to the Alaska court to take further action. And, and, just, and, just, to other, and just to clarify, when you talk about the court, you're talking about family court, not a limited jurisdiction court in an order of protection. Yes, and I will. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, I'm going to get to that's the third option. I'm going to get there in a minute. Um, so when I say the court, I'm talking about the superior court and the family court action. Issues in order says uh, the children on a temporary basis shall remain with dad. And uh, then we'll ask the Alaska court uh, or refer dad to the Alaska court for further action. So if that case came before me, I, make, I might, if I believe that there was a true emergency, I might issue an order saying uh, the children shall remain in father's care but my order shall remain in effect only for 30 days, giving father that amount of time to go file his action in the right court in Alaska. That's what the UCCJEA tells me to do. Now, the third option Dad may pursue, and the one he often does pursue, is that he goes to a limited jurisdiction court and asks for an order of protection. Now, the superior, the, excuse me, the limited jurisdiction court would have the same authority to address the emergency as does the Superior Court. The child is physically present in the state, and the child is in jeopardy of being harmed. However, in those circumstances, uh, if then it, was, it came out that there was an existing Alaska case, then mother would have the opportunity to go to the Alaska judge and say, Hey, that judge in Arizona, in the limited jurisdiction court, didn't have authority to issue a long-term order of protection. That judge only had the authority to act on the emergency. Remember, an order of protection, once issued, remains valid for one year after the party is served. Well, that would contradict the UCC JEA for it to be in effect that long. So I had a case recently where this same situation came up, and it came to me only because the order of protection issued by the limited jurisdiction court had been transferred to the Superior Court. But it was an order of protection issued by a limited jurisdiction court, and the court that had authority under the UCCJEA was California. The California judge contacted me and said, look, there's been an order of protection issued in Arizona, but I have jurisdiction here, and I'm very familiar with the parties. What I did in that case was, as soon as that judge gave me written notice that she was prepared to act on what was the emergency, I issued an order dismissing the order of protection. Not dismissing it because any party had asked me to, not dismissing it because I didn't believe there was a factual basis, but dismissing it strictly because the Arizona court did not have jurisdiction to go beyond the emergency under the UCCJEA. So, after this very long-winded explanation, which I really am sorry if I've been too long-winded, here's this simple notion that I would say. If a child is physically present in Arizona with a parent, and you believe that that child is at risk, and that parent comes to you to, issue, to ask you to issue an ex parte order of protection to include a child, when you have reason to believe that there's another state involved, you should issue the order. It will then be, the, there will then eventually be 
some type of proceeding that will say your order stays in effect only for so long as it takes for the court that has jurisdiction, under the examples I've been giving Alaska, let's say, uh, for that court to then act. And then you might be asked to dismiss the case, not on its merit, but strictly because there's no jurisdiction to, to go beyond the emergency. Now, I, that's a very complex area, and I appreciate that it is. Here's my suggestion to you. If you encounter one of these multi-jurisdiction cases and you, and you get contacted, let's say, by the other state, and you don't know what to do, feel free to call me or to email me at the Superior Court in Maricopa County, and I will be happy to discuss the particulars of the case. I will tell you that this whole area of law under the UCC, JEA, is the subject of day-long conferences when we teach judges and lawyers about it. It is not a simple area of law by any means, and it's certainly not something that in a five to ten minute answer can be fully covered. But I hope this gives you some direction. If it's an emergency and you think a child is at risk and there's another state involved, do what you need to do to protect the child, but understand that the order you issue may have limited application and you may eventually find that you did not have jurisdiction to do it, but you would have, you'll have emergency jurisdiction, just not the kind of jurisdiction or authority on a longer-term basis that you have when parties within the state ask for an order of protection. Thank you. And while we have both of you present, uh, there are, are two other petitions that address the issue of what to do if both parties fail to appear at a contested hearing on a protective order. Uh, Judge Williams, do you want to briefly address that? Sure. We recently discovered that there was no standardized position among our judges, both in Justice Court and in Superior Court as well, concerning what happens if both sides fail to appear for a contested hearing on a protective order. In most types of cases that are heard in courtrooms, if the side that has the burden of proof does not show up, then they lose. It's, it's that simple. However, with protective orders, some judges err on the side of caution and keep the order of protection in place if both the plaintiff and the defendant fail to appear at the scheduled hearing. Judges with this view correctly note that an initial determination was made that the plaintiff was credible when the order was granted, and there has been no evidence available to discredit that initial testimony if both sides fail to appear for the hearing. We discussed this at a Maricopa County bench meeting and could not come up with a uniform position. So in response, um, with Charles's help, I submitted a petition to amend the Arizona Rules of Protective Order procedure that provided two options if both sides failed to appear. Option one was leave the order in place. Option two was dismiss it. Those are, those are really only, the only two options. Um, and I basically just asked the Supreme Court to pick one so that courts across the state would have a rule. After that, the Committee on the Impact of Domestic Violence in the Court, CIDVIC, we've talked about them, I guess, throughout this uh, podcast, did their own rule change petition requesting that a protective order remain in place as, um, remain in place as is um, if both sides fail to appear. And we'll wait and see what the Supreme Court does. There's always a concern in, in the back of your mind that if the domestic violence victim came in 
you're always worried that, you know, is is the victim not appearing for the hearing due to some kind of pressure from the alleged abuser. And that's why judges err on the side of caution, and that's why a lot of them prefer just to keep the order in place. And will and the Supreme Court will be ruling on all of the rules petitions by the end of the year. Let's hope so. Yes, yeah, sometimes they they send stuff back for additional comment. Um, their operations have been impacted just like every other court operation by the COVID nineteen situation. But hopefully, that won't impact rule change petitions too much. Okay. Go. Judge Cohen? Uh, really interesting about uh, what your findings were about the inconsistency is that when this issue came to my attention, I pulled Supreme Court judges both in Pima County and Maricopa County to see, all right, an order of protection is issued, the party against whom it was issued contested, asked for a hearing, the hearing is set, and then no one shows up. And what was alarming to me, which was similar to your findings, was that about 60% of the judges felt that the order of protection, if nobody shows up for the hearing, the order of protection stays in effect. About 40% of the judges felt, well, if nobody shows up for the hearing, then since the burden of proof is on the petitioning party and that party didn't appear, the order of protection gets dismissed. And any time a rule is written in a way that can allow that type of different treatment depending what court you appear in, that rule has a problem. Now, Judge Williams' suggestion was to the Supreme Court, listen, this is a problem, and can you all just write the rule in a way that gives us clear direction? And since I'm a member on CIDVIC, we addressed it as well uh, after Judge Williams filed his petition. And what, as a policy decision, we were faced as a committee with, where should we err if, if uh, both parties don't show up? And we as a committee made the recommendation to the Supreme Court that the rule change should say that if a petition or if, uh, a plaintiff asks for an order of protection, gets it, serves the other party, the other party asks for a hearing, they, they get the hearing date, and then no one shows up at the hearing, that the rules specifically state that the order of protection shall remain in effect because the objecting party did not come forward to actually object to it by not appearing. We don't know what the Supreme Court is going to do, but I am fairly confident that they will adopt that approach. For the purpose of all judges, whether in limited jurisdiction, courts, or in the Superior Court. A definitive answer from the Supreme Court is what we need. I'm just predicting that in all likelihood, it'll be that if nobody shows up for the contested hearing, you merely affirm the order of protection that you issue on an ex parte basis. But we'll see. We'll see where the objection, if at all, comes and how the Supreme Court uh, perceives the whole issue. Thank you. And while we have everyone's attention today, I do want to talk about 
some of the changes that into the process that went into effect uh, starting in Jan on January 1st. Uh, the one that we're all familiar with is the as point process. Uh, I don't want to go into that in great detail, uh, but I do want to remind everyone that we are specifically prohibited from mentioning the plaintiff's address on the record. Uh, so Judge Cohen, would you like to address that? I'd be happy to. Um, there's a policy decision that is behind this new rule, new law, about the address of the plaintiff or the petitioning party. Uh, when, in some situations, when a, um, an application is made for an order of protection, the person applying for the order of protection has moved to a location that he or she cannot be found by the uh, alleged perpetrating party. And then when we go ahead and give exclusive use of the residence or providing you can't go to this address, what we end up doing is disclosing to the perpetrator exactly where the alleged victim is located. And it was because of that concern that the law was changed. So now, as of January 1st, 2020, the, when you are ordering that the alleged perpetrator cannot go to the home of the alleged victim, you do not include the address. So some may say, well, how does the alleged perpetrator then know where he or she has to stay away from? And the answer to that is uh, he or she may not know where it is. Uh, but if they find out where it is, they can't go there. So in the first situation where they already know where the person lives, they know where they're not allowed to go. And in the second situation where they don't know where the person lives, we're not going to give them that information. Rather, they just can't try to search out where the alleged victim is living. So this protected address is now in the forms itself. So even if you tried when you use AZ Point to list the address that you are now ordering someone to stay away from. The forms themselves won't allow you to populate that information. There are some questions that have been raised by law enforcement. What happens if somebody inadvertently goes to a location not realizing that the alleged victim lives there? And those kinds of questions are going to be answered by policy and uh, direction given to law enforcement about what to do in those cases. But for our purposes, our courts, superior or limited jurisdiction, all we need to know is that information is no longer going to be part of the order. You are merely going to check the box that says that the alleged perpetrator can't go to where the alleged victim lives, and you're not going to provide any more detail beyond that. Thank you. The last topic uh, is another major change, and this one is to the injunction against harassment, and that was the change that instead of a series of acts, it um, also included one act of sexual violence, and unfortunately, it referred to a Title 23 statute, which is the labor laws, so I have included a, uh, a listing of exactly what uh, statutes are included, and that is in the materials that you'll find in Hightail. Judge Williams, did you want to address that? 
Just briefly, normally, as we know, there has to be a pattern of harassment before a judge can grant an injunction against harassment. The Arizona law was recently amended to state that a single act of sexual violence is a sufficient basis for an injunction. It was already the law that victims of domestic violence could request an order of protection. But order of protections usually require some type of relationship between the parties. Um, for example, uh, a relationship that was once romantic would would meet the test for a, an order of protection. But it, some, a category of victims in sort of an awkward position. What if you're sexually assaulted by someone you weren't dating? And again, the problem with the statute is it refers to a different statute, which then refers to a bunch of other statutes in, in, uh, which are not easily discerned. So I, I, I think it's important to print off that list of sexual violence and keep it on the bench with you. Uh, so that is the, the end of the topics that I have. Uh, would either of you like to add anything further before we adjourn? If I may, I'd like to say that... Um Historically, there's been a, um, this um, invisible divide between the limited jurisdiction courts, judges, and the Superior Court judges, um, as if we were not part of the same judicial branch of the state of Arizona. And I'm hoping, and I, I know Judge Williams uh, shares this, is that from the work that, that we've started and the conversations we've had, that we're going to get rid of that invisible divide because we all deal with common issues, and we should all be working together to find common solutions. The work that uh, Judge Williams spearheaded is a great example of moving in that direction, and I'm hoping we'll have a new normal for even have so many new normals that are coming out of these crazy times. I'm hoping that this is one of the good new normals that comes over time, is uh, the collaboration between our courts so that we are all sharing the the wisdom, the insight, the experience we have in dealing with issues that are perplexing when we come up with common solutions. Judge Williams, the last word. Thanks. I, I would just like to thank Judge Cohen for all of his help and assistance. When you when you go down a, a, a legal path, it's much, much easier traveling if you have a subject matter expert along with you, who is also very friendly and very approachable. Um, sometimes subject matter experts are, are neither friendly nor approachable, but, but Judge Cohen has, has been a, a genuine joy to work with, and I, I appreciate that. And thank you to both of you, and uh, let's all stay safe and healthy. Thank you very much.